Hello, and thanks for listening with us today. We are the Beach Church. We are real people trying to show real love from a real God. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and that you continue to stay with us. We are encouraged by everyone who listens. We hope that you are blessed today by everything that we talk about. See you guys. Take care. Take a couple minutes and uh, just let the word of the Lord uh, speak to us today. And so, uh, you guys know we've been reading passages throughout our time together. um, And we've been trying to connect four passages uh, to the truth that God has for us. And so, uh, the first one's going to be Exodus 22. And as you hear Selena read about the law um, and about law code, uh, don't fall asleep. It's... uh, it has a point, and it'll be, it'll be powerful if you let the Lord just continue to, to lead us through it today. So she's going to read Exodus 22, 1 through 27 today. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for one sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guilt for him. If the sun has risen on him and there is blood guilt for him, then there is blood guilt for him. A thief must surely make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he will be sold for his theft. If the stolen item should in fact be found alive in his possession, whether it be an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he must pay back double. If a man grazes his livestock in a field or a vineyard and he lets the livestock loose and they graze in the field of another man, he must make full restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or standing grain or the whole field is consumed, the one who started the fire must surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or articles for safekeeping and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he must repay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house will be brought before the judges to see whether he has laid his hands on his neighbor's goods. In all cases of illegal possessions, whether for an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any kind of lost item about which someone says, this belongs to me, the matter of the two of them will come before the judges. And the one whom the judges declare guilty must repay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep it and it dies and is injured or carried away without anyone seeing it, then there will be an oath to the Lord between the two of them that he has not laid his hand on his neighbor's goods and its owner will accept this and he will not have to have him pay. But if it was stolen from him, he will pay its owner. If it is torn in pieces, then he will bring it for evidence and he will not have to pay for what was torn. If a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and it is hurt or dies when its owner was not with it, the man who borrowed it will surely pay. If its owner was with it, he will not have to pay. If he was hired, what was paid for the hire covers it. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and goes to bed with her, he must surely pay the marriage price for her to be his wife. 
If her father refuses to give her to him, he must pay money for the bride price of virgins. You must not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever has sexual relations with the beast must surely be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to a god other than the Lord alone must utterly be destroyed. You must not wrong a resident, foreigner, nor oppress him. For you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them in any way, then cry and they cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry. And my anchor will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Yep. And your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are needy among you, do not be like a moneylender to him. And do not charge him interest. If you do take the garment of your neighbor and pledge, you must return it to him by the time the sun goes down. For it is his only covering. It is his garment for his body. What else can he sleep in? And when he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Amen. 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 You can give it to me. I'll take that, actually. Yeah, I'll take the Bible. Amen. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Law code, right? That's fun. We'll get into that in a moment here. Thank you, Selena, for reading that. Yeah. Baruch Hashem. Amen. Tim's going to read Psalm 1 for us this morning. Oh, the joy of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Yeah. Or stand around with sinners. Or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, yeah. meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the river bank, yeah. bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Yeah. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will not be, er, they will be condemned. At the time of judgment, sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Amen. The word of the Lord. Amen. Alyssa's well, going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our ex exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, Amen. not as pleasing men, but God Amen. who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we may have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own, own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Amen. Word of the Lord. Amen. I want to read to you from Matthew's gospel this morning. Um, Matthew 22. We're going to get into verse, um, starting in verse uh, 40 or 34 to getting into the rest of the chapter. Matthew 22, 34, it says, Now when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they assembled together. 
And one of them, an expert in religious law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. And while the Pharisees were assembled, Jesus asked them a question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David by the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, no one dared to question him any longer. I'd like us to read or to, to, to connect these four passages today. How the Lord is revealing to us this notion of walking with Christ. And so can we pray this morning over the words that we have heard today? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the privilege of hearing it, Lord. Of receiving it of inwardly digesting it in our hearts today. Lord, I pray that it would reveal your truth today to us and that we would have uh, open hearts to receive it and that you would get all the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. So walking with Christ from Scripture to communion, we want to take these four passages that we read and connect them to the significance of what communion offers us today. But before we embark on that journey of unpacking the Scripture today, uh, I want to take some time to just give you some low-level uh, understanding of what uh, these words mean, right? So uh, to consider a word that holds profound significance in our faith, it's the word communion. Now linguistically, the term originates in the Latin word communio, which means sharing in common or participation. Now at its core, communion speaks of intimacy, fellowship, and mutual participation. In other words, it's not merely just an act of invitation, but it's an invitation to share in the divine. It's an opportunity to share in the divine. To participate in Christ's sacrifice and to intimately connect with Him and one another. So when we partake in communion, we're not just consuming bread and wine, but we are embracing a deep, shared experience with our Savior and fellow believers. And both are important. And today we will learn that both the opportunity for us to share with Christ and to share with each other provide an innumerable level of importance in our lives and impact in our lives. And so C.S. Lewis once said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And so could you just turn to your neighbor and say hi and to thank him for being with us today. Just greet him. Just, you don't have to get up. Just give him a little nod, a gesture. I see you. <laughs> so here's the truth that we see here. There are three truths that we see here in the text. That we see through these passages that we're going to try to unpack today to help us understand. And so these three truths connect us to this reality that we are united to Christ through His sacrifice. 
That we are united to Christ through His sacrifice. Go to that next slide, Aiden. We are united to Christ through His sacrifice. That we are united in Christ to each other. And we are united through Christ to the world around us. See, we are united to Christ through His sacrifice, right? We are reconciled to Him. The Bible says if anyone be in Christ, He is a new creation, right? If anyone believes, He gives Him the privilege to be called the children of God. We are united in Christ to each other. We come from different walks, different cultures, different backgrounds. Maybe we come from different faith traditions and we're collecting uh, this, this moment together. We are one in Christ, even though we may come from so many different places. We are one in Christ. And together, through Christ, we are called to go to the world and preach the gospel and to spread the message. Those are the three truths that we have to identify with when it comes to us walking with Christ. Sharing things in common and being in communion together. We have an incredible blessing in that. And so with this understanding, I want us to explore how this act of communion intertwines with the truth of Scripture that we read today and how it shapes our daily walk with the Lord. And so I'm going to give you some historical significance in a very brief fashion between uh, two terms that we often hear when it comes to uh, this dynamic of the Lord's Supper, right? That's one of uh, the many terms it's used, but historically we see it used in two different terms, and it's the term Eucharist and the term communion. And so we're going to look at those two terms. And so they have deep historical and theological roots in uh, Christian tradition, but they emphasize different aspects of the same sacramental act. Now, I think it's important for me to identify here today um, a very important distinction that we need to make when it comes to us understanding the difference between tradition and traditionalism okay it was said to me uh, in describing those two and i think it's a profound reality that tradition are living things passed down to us by by dead people right so people that have gone on before us have passed down something real to us something meaningful something that was worth devoting their lives to that we have the privilege of picking up and carrying on right that's what tradition is traditionalism is living people holding on to dead things that don't don't mean anything they're just ritual they got they got no power to them see we have to understand the difference because when we talk about traditions we're not we're not saying that uh, we should do away with that because traditions are all about ritual and regulations, not if we understand that they have been passed down to us by those who are willing to, 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 to give their lives for this cause. That's, that's a tradition that we come from. You and I didn't start Christianity. We didn't start it. We weren't the first ones that Jesus spoke to. He spoke to His disciples, and then from there we see Him branching out into ministry for those three and a half years and then he empowered his disciples to go into the world and he appointed people in leadership and they began to spread the gospel and somebody heard that and their eyes were open and then God moved on them to to go somewhere else we are the beneficiaries of a long line of people who have picked up the mantle of something that is alive that is real that is true that has been passed down by those that have come before them that's the difference between tradition and traditionalism we're not holding on to dead things for just doing it. We're, 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 we're taking what's been given to us 
and we're holding on to it, right? That's important because as we think about these truths, we need to see that, okay? So in talking about Eucharist and communion, over time, various theological, cultural, and ecclesiastical developments influence the shift in terminology and emphasis from one to the other, depending on the, the communities, right? And so we'll just look at the origins of the, the terms, right? So the term Eucharist, we've, we've talked about it before in our Bible studies, comes from the Greek word Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. It's tied to the Last Supper narrative when Jesus gave thanks before breaking bread in Matthew 26. The term has been used since the early days of the church and emphasizes giving thanks for Christ's sacrifice. If you just did a cursory search online about the term Eucharist and when that started being used by the church, you will find it in the first century. Writings like the Didache and, and the Apologies of Justin Martyr and, and all of these uh, authors and, 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 and those who were instructing the church uh, what they were going to do after uh, the disciples began to die. And, and John, many believe, died around A.D. 90. And so uh, people like Ignatius of Antioch lived 60 miles from him uh, and was a, was a disciple of his. And, and so you see this continuation happening on throughout. So it's a real truth. And you don't have to search very hard that that term, that, that idea of thanksgiving was being used by believers. And so communion, on the other hand, originates from the Latin word communio, which we talked about, but it means sharing in common or fellowship, right? It underscores the shared nature of the sacrament, uh, the sacrament and the idea of believers coming together as one body in Christ. Now, what is the theological emphasis of that? In the early church, the Eucharistic celebration was often called the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper, right? So in Acts chapter 2, when it says that the people were regularly gathering, they were breaking bread together. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the fellowship, it's referencing terms that were understood historically to be the Eucharist, communion, giving thanks for the Lord. And so the emphasis was on remembering Christ's sacrifice and the communal aspect of sharing the meal. It's why when we uh, do communion, we say things like, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus told his disciples that. And so this is important. But even as uh, these understandings developed and diversified different christian traditions began to emphasize various aspects of the sacrament many of you are familiar with the effects of the protestant reformation right we are in a church that is is a beneficiary of a protestant reformation right we're evangelical right we we believe in the word of god as as the the the, the supreme authority in our lives we don't we don't hold to uh tradition or or uh, authority from anything else other than the word of the Lord, right? And so that's, that's the big thing about what we see. So the 16th century Protestant Reformation was a pivotal moment that influenced the shift in terminology. And so reformers like Martin Luther, who we know, or John Calvin, or Oryx Zwingli, they had varying views on this term, uh, Thanksgiving, Eucharist. But still, they generally sought to move away from what they perceived at the time to be Roman Catholic, because they were fighting against uh, the indulgences and a lot of extremes that had crept into uh, the church. And so these terminologies and practices were there. And so because of that, many Protestant denominations too began, began to favor the term communion to emphasize the communal aspect, the sacrament, and the believer's relationship with Christ. And so they moved away from the word Eucharist. Now for us, it's really just semantics, right? Because it, both of them are, are accompanying this reality uh, of what it is. But I, I, I wanted to take some time to go through those words because... I don't want us to think it's different in terms of what the, what, the, what the intent is, right? And so there were cultural and linguistic factors as well. Like as Christianity spread, 
linguistic preferences played a role. So in areas where Latin was more prevalent, what word do you think they used? Communion, right? Because that was the word that, that was more familiar in their language, right? That became more dominant. And in places that were in the eastern part of the church that were more, more closely connected to Greek-speaking countries, uh, Eucharist became more prevalent in that reality, right? And so uh, we see that, right? So what's happening in our world today, and if you spend any time studying that between different church cultures, you will see a uh, like a dichotomy almost between those two where the modern ecumenical church movements are bringing everything together and so you're hearing maybe some protestant groups use the term eucharist and we, we, we say that sometimes in our language to just explain the historical understanding of what communion meant and so uh, they've kind of taken both and they've combined uh, the two right and so that's important for us to understand because today my goal is to take these passages we read and to give you a broader understanding of what uh, God is revealing to us about Him, Himself, and how communion helps us understand that. So let's unpack these passages for a little bit. In Exodus 22, verses 1-27, through we get to see God's heart for justice. God's heart for justice and our response. You see, the laws in Exodus differ or, or offer a glimpse into a just and caring society. Do you know how societies become just and caring, they have laws. <laughs> if we expect people to be just and caring without laws, um, we are idealistic and naive, right? If you and I had no repercussions of actions and there were no consequences for our actions, uh, many of us would probably be ashamed to admit the depravity that we might fall in. But because we have laws and because we have authority and governing authorities in our culture, uh, that promotes a just and caring society. Now, at times, we know that the system fails. And people get hurt. And people are, are wounded by that. But St. Augustine said this. He said, charity is no substitute for justice withheld. In other words, if you really love someone, uh, you cannot withhold justice from them. Because that's not loving them. Because that's a part of loving them, is to provide justice. And so in Exodus, if someone stole a sheep, they would repay fourfold. Now this wasn't merely about property, it was about God's desire for restoration. God wanted to restore them, not just for them to pay it back, God wanted them to be restored. And so Exodus 22 is not merely a list of regulations, but it's a profound reflection of God's heart. It teaches us about God. About his heart for justice and the responsibilities placed upon his people to proliferate that. And so in this chapter, we see a few things. We see God's value system. We see justice as restoration. We see protection of the vulnerable. So what is God's value system? You see, at the very outset, the laws of Exodus 22 emphasize a system of values. Where every individual, regardless of their social status, is accorded dignity and respect. Every person, no matter who they are, is accorded the same dignity and respect. The, man Amen. the mandate for restitution in cases of theft, like when, when you were repaying somebody who stole a, a sheep, right? That underscores not just the value of property, but the value of trust. It's not just the, the value of property, but the value of trust. Relationships 
and societal balance. What do I mean by that? It's not merely about returning a stolen item. The biblical understanding of the law was that it was about mending a tear in the societal fabric. That an injustice had occurred and it had broken trust between two individuals or two families or two groups. And so you had to restore the trust and you had to uphold the dignity of the wronged individual. It encompassed it all. And so what we began to see is justice being used as a form of restoration, not just a form of retribution. It was being used to restore people. And so the law in this chapter goes beyond mere punitive measures. It's not just about litigating affairs and and getting what you're owed, but it, it emphasizes restitution and restoration, indicating that justice in God's eyes isn't merely about punishing someone, but about bringing things back into proper alignment. See, that's what God wants to do. He wants to bring everything back into proper alignment. You and I uh, have to deal with the brokenness of the world every single day. When God developed the laws in Exodus, He wanted to establish a system that would bring everything back into proper alignment. We know that the people were unable to keep the law, and so Jesus came, and Jesus made a way for us to be redeemed outside of the law because we couldn't be redeemed inside of the law because we couldn't keep it. But it wasn't because the law wasn't perfect. It's that we weren't. We were unable to keep it. We were unable to, to do what needed to be done. And so when wrongdoings occur, the goal wasn't retaliation, but the goal was reconciliation. The goal wasn't, let me just get back at them. The goal was to reconcile. So for instance, if a thief couldn't repay what was stolen, they were to work off their debt. Can you imagine that? You stole from me, but now, I'm, now you're going to work for me. Right? That's like some free willy stuff, right? You guys remember when the, when, when the, when the kid broke into the, to the park and started graffitiing all of the, the stuff, and then uh, when Willie broke, you guys, you, did you ever watch Free Willie? Was that just me? Was that, was that even a movie? Am I imagining that? Right? That's just a long time ago, right? And so the, 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 the one who was running the aquarium in there, he said, you know what? I'm going to put you to work, right? It was, a, it was an agreement that was made. And so in that, he built trust, right? That's a real powerful imagery of how God established the law to work. He established it to be an opportunity for restoration. And so if a thief couldn't repair what was stolen, uh, they had to work off their debt. And what that did is it ensured the restoration of the property, but also the rehabilitation of the wrongdoer. So it wasn't just about restoring what you, what you owe, but it was about rehabilitating you as well. And so what you begin to see in this system is you begin to see protection of the vulnerable. You see, verses 22 through 24 specifically provide a powerful mandate against oppressing widows and orphans. In a society without modern social safety nets, widows and orphans and people who were destitute and didn't have the support system around them, they were particularly vulnerable. At times in our system, those individuals are still vulnerable. We still see atrocities happening in our world today. But God established the law to even protect those who were vulnerable, the most vulnerable. And so this is a command that God gives to protest And to protect. And what it does is it reveals his deep concern for the marginalized and the defenseless. You know, God cares about those that are marginalized and defenseless. Those that can't defend for themselves. Those that uh, have no support system. God cares about the marginalized and the defenseless. And so it's a clarion call for his people to reflect his heart. But it also actively 
means safeguarding the rights and well-beings of society's most vulnerable members. So that's how God established the law. This isn't a bloodthirsty dictator uh, who is trying to destroy people. This is somebody who wants to restore and rehabilitate people. But he has to be just. And the law is just. And so what is our response to God's heart for justice? You see, as recipients of God's grace and as people called to reflect His character, our response to these laws should be multifaceted. Again, I want to underscore that we are not under the Mosaic law anymore. But we have to understand that these laws and God's value system remain essential in our understanding. We have to understand them to know the nature and character of God. If we don't understand them, then we miss out on God. And we think He's duplicit in His nature, that He's one way in the Old Testament and He's another way in the New Testament. But He's not. He's the same God. And so we have to look at this through some personal reflection. From a communal responsibility perspective and then from a spiritual implication And so from personal reflection, we must evaluate our personal lives. Ensuring that we treat others with fairness, honesty, and respect. We need to recognize the inherent dignity of every individual. Every single person was created to image the Lord. And so whether they honor Him with their lives or whether they recognize Him as their Lord, They were still created to image Him. And that should give us some time for personal reflection. We have a communal responsibility. These laws remind us that we are collectively responsible for upholding justice in our communities. Now, you guys weren't really with me when it came to Free Willy. Maybe you were more of a Police Academy crowd. You guys remember the old movie Police Academy, right? So there was one one version that was Citizens on Patrol, right? Uh, and they had this thing like citizens on patrol, you know, and they had little dances, whatever. And they were trying to mobilize for community policing, right? And there are a lot of cities today that, that are trying to bring back community policing. Um, it's really not uh, the way that Police Academy designed it to where you, you give uh, regular citizens uniforms and send them out on the streets. It's more about uh, communities upholding each other, honoring the commandments that God has brought in place. And lifting each other up in these communities, right? But we have a responsibility to do that. So it means sometimes advocating for the rights of the marginalized, ensuring that systems and structures promote fairness, and actively working to mend societal rifts. But here's the reality. This personal reflection, the communal responsibility, all these things that we think about. If we don't understand the spiritual implications that are necessary in order for all this to function, we will go on extremes on either end. Right? We'll either be so unloving and unkind and hateful towards people that we will not have any rehabilitation. We'll be so loving and caring and, and considerate that we'll think that everybody's just naturally good people. And so if we just give them what they want, then they'll, 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 they'll behave. And we know that both of those don't work. right? Because there's a spiritual reality to the brokenness in our world. There's a spiritual reality. And so on a spiritual level, these laws point to our ultimate need for reconciliation with God. All the brokenness that we see in the world doesn't point to the fact that we need stricter rules here or more more laws here or more of this. It means that people need Jesus. 
Now, you can profess to live for Jesus and still not be a good person. But you and I can't develop the kind of culture and the kind of flourishing environment that God destined for people to to produce in the world, to go forth and conquer without us living a life that honors the Lord. Can't do that. Can't be a good neighbor, really. Can't be a good person. We know that that's not within us. The Bible actually says the opposite. And so these laws point to our ultimate need for reconciliation with God. Just as the laws emphasize restitution and reconciliation, the gospel message is one of reconciliation between sinful humanity and a holy God. That's what the gospel message is. That we are sinful people and we don't deserve relationship with a holy God, but He makes a way because He loves us. And that was achieved through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so in essence, what we see here is that Exodus 22 reveals a God deeply committed to justice, fairness, and reconciliation. That's the Old Testament God, a God who was deeply committed to justice, fairness, and reconciliation. He told Abraham, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But the nations rejected him, didn't they? And even at times, his own people rejected him, and they dealt with the outcry and the evidence and the consequences of what they wanted They wanted to worship the other gods. They wanted to be like the other nations. They rejected the Lord as their sovereign king and they wanted another one. And God was even still gracious in that. So as his people, you and I are invited to embrace and embody these principles. Again, we're not under the Mosaic law, but this reveals to us the nature and character of God. This reveals to us his nature, his character. And so how does this relate to communion? Communion reminds us of the ultimate act of restoration. It reminds us of Jesus mending our broken relationships with God. Just as restitution and exodus aimed to restore societal balance, communion underscores our restored spiritual balance with God. It represents us being restored back to communion with Him. And so how do we continue to hold on to these three truths? We know that we need to understand God's heart for justice and our response to that individually. But I think it's also important for us if we're going to understand these three truths about us being connected in Christ through His sacrifice, connected in Christ to each other, and connected through Christ to the world, that we also need to stay rooted in God's Word. That's what Psalm 1 was teaching us. Staying rooted in in God's word. You see, the psalmist describes a blessed individual as one who finds joy in God's word. You see, Martin Luther said this. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. So this tree by the water doesn't merely exist. It actually thrives. Right? This reminds me of the Hebrew word radath. It's used in Psalm 23 to describe uh, the goodness and mercy that follows after the psalmist. And that word follows is often translated to make us think that God just kind of graciously walks behind us, you know. Uh, We're kind of leading him along and letting him be our Lord. But in reality, what's happening there is the word radaf is the word used to describe when a predator is chasing after a prey. 
So when it says, surely your goodness and mercy is following me, <coughs> what it's saying is that your goodness and mercy is chasing after me. See, God is aggressive in chasing after us. That's what the psalmist is reminding us of. And so the Bible is alive to us. The Bible is active. The Bible speaks to our hearts. And so Psalm 1 offers us a vivid contrast between the righteous and the wicked. It shows us the difference. And it uses imagery from nature and daily life to convey personal truth. So what does it reveal to us? It reveals to us the righteous categorized as flourishing trees. Right? It reveals to us this reality of delighting in the law. This reality of the contrast with the wicked, right? And the assured future that they find themselves in, right? So let's look at the righteous as flourishing trees for a moment. You see, the psalmist likens the righteous person to a tree planted by streams of water. As a tree planted by the streams of water. You see, this imagery is rich in its connotation. It's trying to reveal something to us, right? Because trees by water sources are nourished. They're stable and they're fruitful. They're nourished, they're stable, and they're fruitful. And so the streams of water can be seen as a metaphor for God's Word. And it's suggesting to us that those who immerse themselves in it will experience spiritual nourishment, stability, and fruitfulness. Yesterday, uh, Selena, Gigi, uh, my three older children, uh, myself, uh, several students from Seapoint, uh, many of the faculty members and volunteers went out to Northside Park, uh, and we did some landscaping and some work there to help their parks and recreation. But while we were there, uh, we got a chance to plant two trees. We planted a, a, a bald cypress, and we planted uh, a coastal live oak. And those are really cool experiences because uh, we got to talk about uh, how these trees were going to grow and flourish, and we got to see how that process unfolded. And I don't know if you've ever planted a tree before, but it was pretty, pretty moving to see how that worked out. And so the, the arborist that was there <clears throat> working for the, for the city, he showed us this uh, contraption that was an invented. It was an invention probably a few years ago, but it, <clears throat> it's like revolutionizing the tree growing industry. Um, it's called a tree diaper. You ever heard of it before? It's called a tree diaper. Basically what you do, uh, you soak this sponge-like thing that almost looks like it's got the material in it that you would see in like an ice pack when you freeze it. So it stays moldable, but it, but it absorbs moisture. So you soak that until it's thoroughly full of water. And then you wrap that around the base of the tree. So it's like a donut, really. And then it, it kind of slowly seeps out the moisture into the base of the tree so that even if it's in a dry spot or a dry time of the year, that tree continues to flourish, that tree continues to grow, and it continues to build its roots. Now, to me, that's powerful, and I don't think that we can under, under, underestimate the significance of what that example can reveal to us about how God's Word works in our lives. That if we store it up, right? If we store up God's Word in our heart, the Bible says that we will not sin against Him, right? And why is that? Because when we need it the most, God's Word will trickle out into our lives. And if we store it up in our hearts, then we will not sin against Him, right? It doesn't mean that, do we always feel like reading the Bible? Absolutely not, right? Sometimes we're like, I don't feel it. But the danger of basing our devotion and 
allowing God's Word to shape us on whether or not we feel like it is really the difference on whether or not our roots go deep or whether or not we become pretty shallow in our faith. Because what happens is, is when that tree doesn't have a source of water, something like that is like the streams of water, right? So trees planted by the streams of water flourish and are nourished. And when you and I store up God's Word in our heart, we are continuing to do what God called us to do, right? So what happens is that when we understand what God's Word does for us, we're like a tree who understands what water does for it, right? You know, naturally, trees are drawn to water. You know why? Because it flourishes, it grows, it produces life, right? If a tree isn't close to a water source or it knows that there is water somewhere, it's, it's incredible to see how the roots will continue to grow out. And we'll try to attach into that system of nourishment. It's profound to think about, but you and I are the same way, right? When we learn, and if we will finally learn how nourishing and effective rooting our lives in God's Word can be, then we will start to delight in the law of the Lord. We'll begin to delight in what God says and what He teaches, and we'll begin to seek after it. You see, the righteous person's key characteristic is their delight in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on it day and night, right? Now, meditation here isn't a mere intellectual exercise. It's not just them going through you know, rhythms and things like that, but it's about a deep, continuous engagement with God's Word. Allowing it to shape their thoughts, their values, and their actions. You see, this constant engagement ensures spiritual growth. And that is like a tree continuously drawing nutrients from the water. You see, as we connect to God's Word, we are like a tree planted by the streams of water. So we see a depth there and a strength there. But what's the contrast? The contrast is the wicked. The wicked. See, the wicked are contrasted as chaff, lightweight, rootless, easily blown away by the wind. They have no roots. They have no foundation. They have nothing to hold it down. And even sometimes, uh, you have seen probably that a tree, if the ground gets saturated enough with water, it'll kind of fall over a little bit, right? But have you ever seen trees that had such an intense, deep root system that even though the tree was, was lifted up a little bit, that it began to, it stayed living, it, it just continued to grow, it was just sideways a little bit. If you walk into the forest, you see that all the time. You'll see a tree that has an intense root system holding up another tree and keeping that tree from falling down and dying because of the intense root system. I mean, that's a profound imagery for us to think about, that we have the opportunity to not just um, to flourish in our lives, but to be a benefit to others. We'll talk about that some more in a moment. But the wicked are not like that. And so what that teaches us is it shows us about the transient nature of life and a life not anchored in God's truth. When people are not anchored in God's truth, they are prone to impulse. They're prone to impulse. And when I mean impulse, I'm talking about their beliefs, their ideologies, what they, what they base their life on. And what ultimately happens over time is they begin to be unstable because they're not building it and rooting it on an anchor that will hold them. See, that's what makes the Bible so profound in our lives is that as our culture changes and our culture shifts and goes through transformations, the Bible remains the same. 
And if you anchor your life on it, it will help guard you from the extremes and the dangers that our society inevitably walks through. Because it's not looking and fixing its eyes on the Lord. It's doing what is right in its own eyes. And so trees have substance, depth, and longevity. Those that are planted by the streams of water. But chaff is momentarily, right? It's directionless. It just blows wherever the wave is. You see, the psalmist is is comparing these things. And in doing so, he's stressing the importance of grounding ourselves in God's Word to achieve spiritual depth and stability. Why is it important for a tree to have good roots? Because storms always come. If we never had a storm, if we never had a hardship, if we never had anything that challenged the foundation of who we are, we would need a strong root system. You could just set us right on the top of the surface and we'd be okay. But that's why it's important to root our lives on God's Word because we know that storms will come. And they will, they will potentially try to rock us and knock us over. But we are like that house that is built on the rock, right? You dig down deep and you build on the rock so when the waves and the storms of life come, that house won't fall because it is built on a firm foundation. And so what we understand here is that both the righteous and the wicked have an assured future. Many people pay a lot of money to go and talk to somebody to tell them the future. The Bible reveals to us very clearly that God's eyes will always be on the righteous. But the wicked, their lives are going to end in destruction. Not just in eternal judgment. It's not just talking about that, that they're going to perish in any future judgment, but it's talking about the inherent outcomes of chosen paths. When we choose to dedicate our lives to things that don't bring God glory and honor, we can be assured that our lives are going to walk towards destruction. But if we devote ourselves to God and deepen our roots and connect to Him and let His Word shape us and form us, then we will see God's flourishing nourishment abound in our lives. This isn't a quid pro quo. This is when you're connected to the source, you naturally flourish But when you are disconnected from the source, it is only a moment of time until you become rootless and unstable and bound for destruction. And so that's the reality here. A life rooted in God's Word leads to spiritual flourishing, while a life apart from it leads to spiritual barrenness. And so what are the implications for us as believers? We have a personal commitment. We have community influence. We have eternal perspectives. See, Psalm 1 challenges us to evaluate our commitment to God's Word. Do we merely read it? Or do we meditate on it? Do we listen to it? Do we hear it? Do we inwardly digest it? So that it can shape our lives? Or are we just reading it to occasionally get things from it that we need? And so our personal commitment is important. But it's important because God didn't just reveal His truth to us so that we could be nourished and flourish, but it's so that we can help others as well. So that we can tell others. There's a community influence to it, right? Trees provide shade and bear fruit benefiting others. 
The same thing is true about a life deeply rooted in God's Word. It positively impacts surrounding communities. One of the things that the arborist told us is that the reason why we planted that bald cypress right where we planted it is because when it began to grow, it was going to provide the appropriate amount of shade uh, for the people who were going to be in the park. And it was strategically placed to benefit those who were going to be there. You and I are placed in the communities and the areas of life that we are in so that as we are rooted in God's Word and letting God flourish and nourish our lives, we will become a source of nourishment to the community and the world around us. That's what we're designed to do, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Our greatest mission field is usually in our homes and then right outside of our doors. Those are our two greatest mission fields, in our home and right outside our door. Maybe when we go to our jobs or our school. We don't have to go to a foreign country. It usually starts right there. And so our spiritual health isn't just for personal benefit. It means and it's meant to bless and influence those around us. And there is an eternal perspective to this. Psalm reminds us that our choices have eternal consequences. So anchoring our lives in God's Word isn't just about the present benefits, but it's also about aligning ourselves with God's eternal purposes. What matters most in this world? So in essence, Psalm 1 represents a compelling version and a vision of a life deeply anchored in God's Word. And it challenges us to be like trees planted by streams of water, drawing sustenance from the truths of Scripture and flourishing, get this, in every season of life. Not just when it's good, but flourishing in every season of life. And so how does that connect with communion? Well, communion serves as a moment of spiritual reflection for us. It draws us close to Jesus, our living water, right? And as we remain rooted in Him, we are nourished and equipped to bear spiritual fruit. To bear spiritual fruit. So what do we do, right? We have to root ourselves in God's Word. We have to understand His heart for justice and our response. But we also need to share Christ's love authentically. That's how we accommodate and accomplish these three truths about us. That we're connected to Christ, each other, and we're supposed to be united in our attempts to evangelize the world. We have to share Christ's love authentically. Paul speaks of genuine care for the Thessalonians. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a theologian, he died when he was 39 years old. 38 right now. He died when he was 39 years old. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew a thing or two about suffering for the cause of Christ. He died at 39 because of his faith in Jesus. He said Christianity means community through Jesus and in Jesus. See, it's not just that through Jesus that we are able to to walk in victory, but it's in Jesus that we are connected. Together. That's what it means to be in Christian community. In this passage, Paul reflects on his time with the Thessalonian believers, and he emphasizes the sincerity, the love, and challenges that marked his ministry among them. And of that, he talked about their courage amidst opposition, their pure motives, and their gentle and loving care, and their selfless sacrifice. And he began to challenge them in this, right? So let's look at their courage amidst opposition. Paul begins by recalling how they had suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Yet they boldly proclaim 
the gospel in Thessalonica. Think about that. They were they faced intense opposition in Philippi, yet they're in Thessalonica now sharing the gospel. They had continued on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this sets a precedent for believers. And we need to understand this truth. Genuine ministry. Genuine ministry often comes with challenges. Let me say that again. Genuine ministry often comes with challenges. It's a call to persevere in faith, even when faced with adversity. We've got to understand that, right? Even when faced with adversity. And so our motives have to be pure. Paul emphasizes the purity of his team's motives. They weren't seeking human approval or driven by greed or deceit. Now, we live in an era, um, and it's not much different than what Paul was dealing with in his time, where there were charlatans and false prophets, and things like that were common. And so Paul and, and the believers in Christ often dealt with these issues. Paul's integrity stood out. And this is a timeless reminder to us to serve sincerely, prioritizing God's approval over human praise. That we do what we do to honor the Lord, not necessarily to seek approval from one another. And Paul uses incredible imagery here about the gentle and loving care that comes in living uh, a life that is authentic. He uses the imagery of a mother caring for her children to describe his relationship with the Thessalonians. And so this, this maternal metaphor underscores the depth of Paul's affection. And ministry, as Paul portrays it, isn't just about teaching or leading. It's about loving deeply, nurturing and caring for the spiritual well-being of others. And it is more than anything, out of this, love and care is a selfless sacrifice. You see, Paul and his companions were willing to share the gospel in their very lives. This level of commitment goes beyond mere duty. This isn't just a responsibility. It's a profound love that mirrors Christ's sacrifice and love for humanity. It challenges believers to reflect on this truth. Are we willing to give ourselves entirely for the sake of others? Are we willing to give ourselves entirely for the sake of others? Again, we have some implications to think about. We have to examine our motives. Paul's emphasis on sincerity prompts us to evaluate our motives in ministry. Are we driven by a genuine love for God and others, or are there ulterior motives at play? Which, as we've discussed before, that's the difference between extrinsically oriented people, religious people, and intrinsically oriented religious people. Right? If somebody's extrinsically oriented in their religious experience, it means that they are coming to religion to get something from it. Right? They come to church, they interact with people, and it's all about what they can get from it. But people who are intrinsically oriented in their religious experience and their expression, it is an outflow of their lives. And so what you see is a, is a more genuine and authentic expression when it, when it comes from an outflow of their hearts, not as a desire to gain something from it. So we've got to Examine our motives. We also have to embrace sacrificial love. You see, Paul's willingness to share his life challenges us to, to consider the depth of our commitment. This is an important truth that you have to understand this morning. Faithful ministry. Now, if you profess faith in Jesus, all of us 
are in some way, shape, or form called to minister to those around us. It may not be in a pastoral, priestly perspective or on stage in a, in a visible capacity, but it will be ministry. Faithful ministry involves sacrifice, often demanding more than we initially expected. How many of you ever felt that before? Lord, I said yes, but I had no idea this is what this is going to mean. You, I didn't think this is what was going to happen. But I said yes, and so I know I said yes, but I did not expect this to happen. You see, faithful ministry involves sacrifice. And so here's the reality that we have to answer. Are we willing to embrace the sacrificial love that we're called to walk in? Because if we do, then we begin to walk in the power of authenticity. We begin to be authentic in our faith. You see, Paul's genuine care for the Thessalonians had a lasting impact. It was laying the foundation for a thriving church. And this reminds us that authenticity is powerful. And we know enough about what's fake and polished and, and catered and curated that we, we, we begin to have sort of a, almost like a, um, um, a gag reflex towards something that, that we imagine is too polished, too packaged, right? We like authenticity. We like things that have a little, a little you know, edge to them, right? That's why as a church, we're real people, real love, real God, right? So we understand that and we appreciate that. So we know that the opposite of that sometimes is, is chaotic, right? But authenticity is powerful, and it teaches us that simple, heartfelt ministry can transform lives and communities, simply just loving people and loving others, right? And so in essence, what's happening here is 1 Thessalonians is teaching us a profound reflection on the heart of faithful ministry. And Paul is experiencing this, and his insights challenge believers to serve authentically, to love deeply, and remain steadfast no matter the challenges. That's what he was telling the Thessalonians. And so how does that relate to communion? Well, in communion, we share in Christ's life and love. It's a tangible reminder to us to live authentically, sharing Jesus' love in both word and deed. So quickly, how does this all wrap up? I think Matthew 22 teaches us about living out love daily. That's why this matters. Understanding these three truths and understanding God's idea of righteousness in the world and our response to that and us deeply rooting ourselves in God's word and, and living out faith authentically is living out a life of love on a daily basis. You see, Jesus gives a clarion call to love God and our neighbors. We've heard that before, right? Love God and love others. That's not a new phenomenon in our world. But Mother Teresa beautifully encapsulated this by saying, if we have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Think about that for a second. Our world is full of chaos. Why? Because we don't think that we are connected to each other through a singular creator. If we realize that we were all connected together to image Him, and each one of us deserve the same amount of dignity as the other person does, and all of us are unworthy of His grace, but He's poured out His grace on us. It would change the way our world works. It divided us and caused us to walk in defeat because of that lie that has been told. See, these aren't passive sentiments. They're active guiding principles. And so in this section of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus engages with religious leaders and He provides insight 
that transcends the mere religious practice in our lives. And it delves into the heart of true devotion and understanding. And how does he do it? He does it by talking about the greatest commandment and about his dual nature. Right? So in question about the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus succinctly summarizes the essence of the entire Old Testament. He says, love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple, right? This is transformative because instead of a religion bogged down by rituals and regulations, Jesus emphasizes a relationship with God and others. Now this is important because what most people like to say when they say, I don't have religion, I have relationship, is that means they don't actually want to follow any, any, any authority in their lives. They just want to love Jesus and people to leave Him alone. That's not how the church has operated. So for somebody who says, well, I don't, I don't want a religion, I just want a relationship. Well, the whole act of us corporately working out our faith is a religious experience. It's built on our relationship. But let's make no mistake about it. If it becomes ritual to us, and it becomes just a system for us that doesn't matter, then our relationship with the Lord isn't where it needs to be. But if our relationship with the Lord is where it needs to be, and we're fixing our eyes on Him, then we find it a joy and a privilege to participate in the activity that the church has always participated in. That they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The spiritual disciplines that, that make up what we would consider to be religion. It's built on a relationship. And so this relationship with God is important because it's calling us to genuine, selfless love, which is the foundation of all moral and spiritual duty. But lastly, it's about the Messiah's dual nature. See, the Pharisees' challenge allows Jesus to highlight a profound messianic truth. By questioning them about David's son, Jesus underscores the Messiah's dual nature. That he is both David's descendant, meaning he's human, and he's David's Lord, meaning that he is divine. And this revelation challenges the limited understanding that we have of the Messiah as merely a political figure or a, a national liberator. It points to Jesus' unique role as the God-man, the Savior of humanity. So what are these implications for us today? We have an opportunity to live out love. You see, Jesus' emphasis on love challenges believers to evaluate our lives. Is our faith merely ritualistic? Do we just go through the motions? Now, some of you might say, well, if the pastor's telling me that if I'm going through the motions and I'm not doing it right and I just need to quit, uh, don't let bad doctrine walk you down dark paths. Okay? What I mean by bad, doc bad doctrine is, is we would often quote passages like in Revelation, right? Where, where it says, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, right? So people will say, well, you know, I'm, I love God, but I'm not really on fire for Him like I need to be. So I'm in a bad place, so I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm just not going to, to try to do any of these religious things because I'm really not doing it with my whole heart. That's not even what that passage is saying. It's talking about two streams of water, right? Hierapolis had a hot spring in it. Colossae had a cold spring in it. Both of those springs would channel to Laodicea who didn't have a natural water source. And by the time it came to them, it was lukewarm. It wasn't, didn't have the healing properties that the hot springs did. It wasn't as pure. 
and delicious as the cold springs were. So both of them were good. But by the time it came to Laodicea, it was not good. So what was he saying there? He was saying to the leaders that you were diluting the message so much that it was just like your water that's good for nothing by the time it gets to you. He wasn't saying, either you're on fire or you're not. That's bad doctrine. That's not what he's saying. So don't let yourself go, you know, my heart's really into it, so I, just, I didn't want to be inauthentic to the Lord. Mira, if you don't let yourself stay connected to some sort of regiment, and you let your feelings dictate you, you're never going to do anything. You know what keeps me going in my daily life? The fact that I've committed to seek God at certain times of the day. That I've committed to, to, to read certain times during the day. And when I don't feel like it, when, I, when I'm not in the mood, I've committed to do that. That's not ritual. That's me letting God form and shape my life. That's not me saying, I'm just not feeling it, God. I don't want to be an authentic to you because I don't want you to think I'm being a lukewarm Christian. So I'm just going to back away today and not do anything because you know I want to be authentic in my faith. All of us have days where we don't want to do things for God. We have to keep going. Because if you just base it off of what you think, eventually what will happen is we will allow our feelings to dictate our faith. And that's not what it was designed to do. Our faith was designed to supersede our feelings. And that's why it's important not to just think of these disciplines in our lives as ritualistic. They can be ritualistic. They can be just a, a habit that we do. But my goodness, I can't imagine how terrible our life would be that if we devoted to commit ourselves to the Lord on a regular basis, I doubt we'd walk back and go, man, you know what? My life was just miserable. I went to church. I prayed. I read my Bible. I, I was faithful in church. and My life's miserable. If you felt that way, I don't know that you have a real relationship with him, but I've, I have a different perspective on that. I'm so thankful that, I, that God loves me enough that when I fall short and miss the mark, which I do every day, that He loves me enough that He continues to offer me opportunity to connect with Him. And it has nothing to do with my feelings. It has everything to do with my commitment that He is sovereign and He's Lord. So some days I miss the mark. But we have to deepen our understanding to get through those moments. Jesus' discourse on the Messiah's nature prompts believers to seek a deeper understanding of Christ. Who is Jesus to you? It's a call to move beyond super, superficial or cultural perceptions of Jesus and embrace Him in His fullness. And so we have to do that, right? And sometimes Jesus did that by engaging with questions. And use those questions to explore core Christian faith. So what does this mean to us about communion? It means that communion embodies this kind of dual love that we see in Jesus. As we partake of it, we're reminded of Jesus' profound love for us and the call to extend that love to others. And so as we think about it this morning, as we get ready to take communion this morning, as we <clears throat> are finishing up today, can we take this <clears throat> reality, this love, this, 
this authenticity that we've been talking about, this peace that God has revealed in our hearts and our lives today. These truths that God has revealed to us to encourage us today. And can we just take a, a couple of minutes and us just greet one another today as we are encouraged today of what the Lord is doing in our lives before we get ready to take communion today. Would you just go around and greet one another today and offer them the peace of God today in their lives. Go ahead, Aiden, if you want to play some music, my man. Amen. No longer I who Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Rich, good to see you, man. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. We can be a people of joy, a people of love, a people of peace because of we know what the Lord has done in our lives. We can offer that gift of peace today in our hearts. And so as we get ready to approach this table today, let's ponder on these truths that we've heard today. How are we living out God's commands for our lives? How are we sharing His love See, Thomas Akempis said this. He said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. You see, communion intertwines with our daily walk with Jesus in such a profound way. And so as we partake in that, let's embrace its depth and its implications today. Let's remember the words of Church fathers like John Chrysostom who said, How many of you say I should like to see his face, his garments, his shoes? You do see him. You touch him and you eat him. See, communion is a relationship. It's a commitment, a journey. And may the Lord be continually drawn into closer fellowship. And may we be drawn to that fellowship with him and one another through it and so lord it is right and it is our duty and our joy always and everywhere lord to give you thanks and lord we praise you today and we join our voices together with all the heavenly host and the angels and archangels in heaven singing to you the timeless ancient hymn that will be sung around your throne for all eternity Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, we know and recognize that in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. And by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, He became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Lord, in obedience to Your will, He stretched out His arms upon the cross and offered Himself once for all that by His suffering and death we might be saved. And Lord, by His resurrection, He broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under His feet. And we recognize that as our great High Priest, He ascended to Your right hand in glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace today. Lord, we thank You today that we can rejoice that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and He gave thanks to it by saying, Baruch Atai Adonai, Eloheinu Malach HaOlam, Hamoti Lehem Min Haaretz. And he broke it and he gave thanks to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, right? And he prayed a similar prayer. Baruch atayadunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, bore pare hagafen. And he gave thanks saying, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many and for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we proclaim the mystery of the faith today. That Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. He will come again. And so we celebrate the memorial of our redemption today, Lord, and this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And we offer you these gifts, God. Lord, may you sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people. The body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may you sanctify us also. That we may worthily receive this holy sacrament. And be made one body with him. That he may dwell in us and we in him. And Lord, in the fullness of time, may you put all things in subjection under your Christ. And bring us with all your saints into the joy of your heavenly kingdom where we shall see our Lord face to face. But we thank you today. And we rejoice today. And it's why we have the opportunity and are willing and bold to pray together today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we don't presume to come down to this table trusting in our own righteousness. But our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are not worthy to pick the crumbs up from under your table. But it is your will to show mercy and grace to us. You love us. And you poured out that love for us. And so Lord, may you grant us today the opportunity to take this bread and this cup, God. That our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body. And that our souls would be washed through his most precious blood. And that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Hallelujah. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us today. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. 
Grant us your peace today. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you. The bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hey, thank you for watching today's podcast. We hope that you will continue to join us and subscribe. Remember, we're just real people trying to show real love from a real God. And everything that you do to help with that uh, brings glory to God. So thank you, guys. Take care.